Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. This morning when I came up here, the, uh, the stand here had a, a glue gun, and it's still covered in glitter, um, which, I mean, that'll be here till kingdom come for sure. But uh, anyway, the ladies did a whole bunch of work making this place look pretty awesome, uh, a, lot, a lot of work that went in there, so pretty cool, and appreciate... Appreciate the, uh, the artistry that, uh, that we have and people like Micah and Kylie and different volunteers within the church. Uh, I do not have that artistic thing. And so they come up with ideas and I say, if you can execute it, have a good time. Um, you know, I'm probably not going to be of any value to that. But um, so, so my bit here is to actually hopefully uh, do something not so much artistic, but something that kind of helps us wrap our mind around who is God um, and how does he want to have relationship with us. And so we're looking at this series during the Christmas time of with us, God being Emmanuel, God with us. And uh, what we're looking at this morning is he is with us just as he planned. That has been God's plan all along, that he would be with us. He is a relational God. Uh, he longs to uh, have us draw near to him. He has actually drawn near to us, and he's made it capable for us to be in close proximity, fellowship, communion with him. Uh, that's an amazing thing. Uh, the other thing that we talk about when we talk about God is that he is, he's omnipresent. He's right here with us, but he's also, uh, you know, he's with the rest of his children around the world at the same time. Uh, I've had times in my life with six kids where I'm like, man, I have two kids, they have events at the same time. I'd love to be in both places, but I just can't pull that off. Uh, the amazing thing about God is he does that not times six, but like times billions, right? He is, he is with everyone at all times. He knows about us. He cares for us. For us. He's forgiving. He's slow to anger. He's compassionate. Um, he, he really is the one that you want with you at all time. He transforms us. He gives us life. Uh, he enlightens us to understand what's true and wise and make good decisions. It's pretty amazing he's with us like that. Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about during this time in the Christmas series. I, I would say that my goal in any time that I have an opportunity to speak to a group of people like this um, is I'd love for us to be able to get our eyes on Jesus and see him well. Um, I think that that's something that hopefully we're doing throughout our weeks, but that's largely what this is about. We're here to fix our eyes on Jesus, to understand his character and his goodness, uh, to enjoy the community uh, that, that it comes together to know him, to invite people into relationship with him. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you don't have a uh, relationship with Jesus. You haven't trusted in his death to save you from your sins. You don't believe that he rose from the dead to give you a new life. I hope that you can see what this Christianity thing is all about, what it is to know Jesus. Um, that's always my goal in a message. Um, I would say that is particularly going to be a focus during the Christmas season. We're going to really, really dive in to what, is, what, what has Jesus done for us and who is he. And this morning, the focus will be on his plan of salvation. God had a plan of salvation from eternity past, knowing full well that if he gave us free choice, we would choose to go away from him and we would need to be forgiven and healed and cleansed and made new. And so that's what God 
God knew he was going to have to do. That's what Jesus' advent is about. It's the culmination of many, many prophecies coming to be in the person, uh, the child of Jesus. Uh, One of those prophecies and one of the prophets that led us to that would be Isaiah. And so we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7 this morning, um, as well as Matthew chapter 1. So maybe you want to put a finger in both places. But Isaiah, as we look at him, uh, he lived about 700 years before Jesus. Uh, He was a prophet in the nation of Judah. So Israel, if you don't know the history of Israel, they have three great kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And after Solomon's reign, the nation splits in two. Uh, They have some disputes about money, uh, and then they basically go through a short civil war, and they break into two different nations, Israel being the northern nation, Judah being the southern. Um, And Isaiah was a guy that he... Most of his ministry was in Judah to the kings of Judah, but because of his influence, he had some reach into Israel as well. Uh, He was a man that was born with some status. He was born in a wealthy family. It looks like he actually had ties to uh, the house of David um, and that lineage. He was a married man with two sons and uh, some connection, like I just said, to the house of David. He ministered to the kings of primarily Judah and a little bit to Israel for at least 58 years. He had a long ministry of standing before these people and calling out the sins of the nation. That was one of the things that God would have him do. He'd have him stand up and say, these are areas of sin within our nation and they need to be dealt with. If we don't repent from these things, it wasn't just like, um, it wasn't just social reform. This was about people seeking God's heart. If, so if we're not seeking God's heart, we'll continue in these paths that are destructive. This is what these destructive paths look like in forms of idolatry and sin. We need to repent from those. And if we don't, God's judgment on the nation of Israel is imminent. He promised that he would do it in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. If we run away from him, he said that he would bring us back through forms of discipline. And he's saying, we, we we need to make that choice before we receive this discipline. Uh, then the other thing he would do is call out the leaders of, of the nation, uh, the sins that existed within the religious uh, area within the nation. So there was a religious elite, and they had sin issues, and he would call those out. Uh, there were political elite, and he would call out the sins that existed within that area and invite these people to repent and follow God once again, return to his word. And if they didn't, then that judgment would be something that was coming. Uh, In the passage we're going to look at, he's interacting with a king named Ahaz, and Ahaz is not painted well within the Bibles because he was... He was a wicked person. He fought against God. He wasn't out for the best of the people. Uh, He built shrines to foreign gods and uh, actually went to a foreign nation, saw the shrine and said, let's build one just like that within the temple that is dedicated to God. Um, And so he was a person that that really didn't do well in leadership at all. And uh, that's who Isaiah is going to be talking to in the passage we look at this morning. Um, tradition states that Isaiah would eventually be martyred by King Manasseh of Judah. He was put inside a hollow log, tradition says, and then sawed in half. Uh, so he gave his life for um, this message that God had of repentance and returning to um, the truth that is within the scriptures. His name, Isaiah, means Yahweh, which is God's Old Testament name. Yahweh is salvation. And so one of the things we want to look at this morning is how is God salvation? How does God save? Um, What is his plan of salvation and how would he heal us and then be with us? How would God do that? And so that's what we want to look at this morning. Let me pray and we'll uh, take a look at 1st Isaiah chapter 7. So Father, this morning we come to you longing to know you. I, I do pray that that's the goal here this morning as we approach the scriptures and learn from 
um, your word that we would, we would have a heart that desires to know you, um, that we would be earnest and um, honest about wanting to understand who you are, that uh, maybe there's parts of your plan of salvation that we understand. Maybe many in this room have already agreed to and trusted in your, your plan of salvation and are living in the life that your son Jesus offers. But maybe there are those this morning um, who would find themselves outside of your salvation in need of forgiveness, in need of healing, um, in need of the transformative presence that you, you have with us. And so, God, I, I pray that for those of us that are, that are in your Son and have been saved, that we would be reminded of truths that maybe we've lost sight of, that we would be uh, thinking of those that we might share these truths with. Um, and for those who, who don't know you yet this morning, God, I do pray that, uh, that they would see you as the one who can forgive and heal and give life. And pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10, it says, Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. And anytime you see L-O-R-D in old caps in the Old Testament like that, that's God's Old Testament name. I am who I am. Yahweh, we would say. So the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. So Ahaz is this king, and he is starting to make political alliances to secure protection for himself and for the nation of Israel. Rather than trusting God to protect him, he's saying, hey, what about the Assyrians? Or what about uh, this other nation? Maybe they could protect us instead of God. And so instead of keeping the current terms of the covenant that God had made with the nation of Israel, he's trying to come up with covenant terms with other foreign nations, nations that worship other gods. And so God is saying, I want to give you a chance, Ahaz. If you'll ask for a sign, it can be anything. It could be as high as the heavens or as low as Sheol, uh, anything in between. You know, it's like a statement of ask whatever you want, Ahaz, and I will give you a sign so that you can know what is going to happen. Look at what Ahaz says in verse 12. He says, he replies and says, I will not ask... I will not test the Lord. And so he does something where he tries to look pious. He actually quotes the scriptures. Well, I won't put the Lord to the test. That would be wrong to do. Well, God just spoke to him directly and said, ask for a sign. I'll give you, I'll teach you, I'll guide you. Whatever, whatever, whatever you ask for, I will give you wisdom in that area. And he says, I will not ask and then he, in an attempt to sound pious, he says, I won't test the Lord. He actually uses scripture to push God away. Pretty interesting. Uh, he actually takes the words of the Bible about not putting God to test, and he takes the words of the scriptures and he uses them to push God away. A very dangerous thing that you and I could do too. We could think that we knew the scriptures well enough that we didn't need to listen to what God has to say. We could twist the scriptures and actually use them to grow away from God rather than closer to him. It's a dangerous game that we could play. And the best lies are the ones that are closest to the truth, right? That's what Satan did to Jesus in... Uh, his temptations, he would quote scripture a little bit out of context in order to tempt Jesus. Uh, right? The best counterfeits are the ones that look like the real thing. And so that's what Ahaz is trying to do here. He's 
totally counterfeit, but acting like he's got it together. So God uses Isaiah in verse 13, and Isaiah said, listen, house of David. And so he's speaking to David's line, the great King David to whom promises were made in 2 Samuel chapter 7 about an everlasting kingdom, about God's promise to bring a Messiah from his line, a king from his line that would bring about uh, utopian reign across the entire earth. Uh, That's the line that he's talking to. They've grown so far from those promises that they actually uh, reject God here in Ahaz. He says, is it not enough for you to just try the patience of men? And the patience of men would be him working with these foreign nations. He's uh, trying to see how much he can get out of the foreign nations before he comes into an agreement with them. It's not just enough that you would test the patience of men. Will you also try the patience of my God? And so Ahaz, he's showing no reverence to God and instead is He's saying that he doesn't want to test God. Oh, I don't want to put God to the test, but it's exactly what he's doing. He's testing God's patience with him as a leader of the nation of Judah. And so the sign that we're about to read here is an answer to Ahaz's rejection of God's leadership in his life. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So you won't ask for one. I'm going to give you one. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. So there's that verse that we know and we apply to Jesus. It's, this is the application of it for Ahaz at that point in time. It says, by the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. So rejecting what is good and choosing what is bad, there's basically two different views on this. Either this is a short period of time, by the time he's, this child that's born is two or three years old, he will, uh, the nation will undergo destruction eating curds and honey, and they will actually be kind of at ends meet and they'll be having to use things that they wouldn't normally use. So it's either a very short period of time, two or three years, or the other thing within Judaism was between 12 and 14 years of age. They considered that the age of responsibility or the age of reason. Um, and so at either, either a very short period of time, two or three years, or 12 to 14 years, the alliances that Ahaz have made will fail and the nation itself will be... Um, any time of great persecution. He goes on in verse 16. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. And so he's saying your political alliances will fail. And so there's a near fulfillment of this prophecy that within Ahaz's time, we don't know who, a woman gave birth to a child. This child was named Emmanuel. And then by the time that child was at the age of reason, the nation had undergone um, a period of both of those alliances that Ahaz was making failing and then being in a place of destruction. Uh, The scriptures don't tell us who this person is. There's a lot of speculation about who it might have been. Some speculate that this is merely figurative, um, that there's not an actual woman who gave birth to an actual son, but this is a a word picture that God is painting so that Ahaz would know that his time uh, within these alliances was short and that they would fail. So there's that near prophecy to the house of David, a virgin conceiving, having a son named Emmanuel. The far uh, fulfillment of this prophecy is that the Holy Spirit inspires Matthew, some 700 years later, to quote these verses as evidence of Jesus' deity and that the Messiah had come to the nation of Israel. Okay, And so that's what we want to look at next. We're going to fast forward roughly 700 years to the book of Matthew. So you turn there to chapter 1. Um, and, and so we fast forward 700 years. And in the 700-year period, um, Assyria 
conquers the northern nation of Israel, and they are no more taken into captivity. Uh, the southern nation of Judah falls to Babylon, and they lose their place as well. They're taken into captivity. The Persians then defeat the Babylonians, and Cyrus the Great makes a decree that the Jewish people can go back to the land. So Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, Ezra goes back and rebuilds the temple. Nehemiah goes back and works on the walls. They receive some degree of, uh, here's our nation again, but it's never quite the same. After the Persians, the Greeks come, and the Greeks uh, go through a period of holding down the Jewish people to the point where they slaughter a pig within uh, the uh, the temple, and you have then you have the Maccabean revolt, and the, the Maccabee brothers, they revolt against the Jewish people, or excuse me, against the Greeks, and they receive a short period where they're in rulership, and then that falls apart, and then the Romans come in, and that's where we meet Matthew. Okay, that's where Jesus shows up. Now, Matthew, he was a Levite. He was supposed to be a priest, but he was a dropout priest. He was somebody that didn't quite cut it in terms of being one of God's representatives to the people. Right? That's what he wanted to be as a member of the line of the Levites. He wanted to be a priest that would stand before God and atone for the sins of the people. He would stand before the people and call them into relationship with God, and he fails at that, and he finds himself a Roman tax collector. He wanted to be God's representative. He found himself as Rome's representative. It was the last thing that he would have wanted to do with his life. And Jesus meets him. He walks up to his booth where Matthew is collecting taxes, and he says to this dropout priest, follow me. And Matthew gets up and he leaves the table behind and he receives his opportunity to be a disciple of a rabbi, just what he'd always wanted. And then he follows Jesus for the three and a half year period of his ministry and he sees Jesus's miracles. He's there for all of these different things that take place, but he wouldn't have been considered one of the prominent disciples, right? He wasn't John, James, or Peter. He didn't get to see the transfiguration. He, he wasn't a witness of those direct things. So if you'd have asked who should write the first gospel, they wouldn't have said Matthew, they'd have said Peter, they'd have said John, right? But Matthew writes the first gospel, and he's very Jewish in the way that he writes it. And so if you were to look at the gospel of Matthew, you would see that this is a guy who he uses Old Testament references 50 plus times within his book, direct quotes. He has over 75 allusions to the Old Testament within his gospel. He's making it very clear to the Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah. The kingdom of God actually showed up among us, but we rejected it. We push back against God, just like Ahaz did. We rejected God's rulership. We rejected him as king, and we said, give us Barabbas instead, and we crucified the prince of life, right? That's what Matthew draws out to the Jewish people. But he also has a message, but God's kingdom is still present among us, but in a way that we didn't see coming, okay? And so when he opens up his gospel in Matthew 1.1, he says, here's a genealogy of Jesus Christ. Here's a genealogy of the Yeshua Messiah, the, the God who is with us to save us, who is the Messiah. He is the son of David and the son of Abraham. And the Jewish reader would go, he's the son of David and Abraham. That means that the promises that God made to David in 2 Samuel are probably coming true in this child that we're gonna talk about being born. That means that God's promises to Abraham of land, seed, and blessing, that he would also have a descendant that through whom the whole world would be blessed, that that promise is coming true true in this child, right? That's Matthew's point as he opens up with this 
genealogy. I'm not going to read the genealogy with you, but if you skip to verse 17, it says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David until exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. And so he gives us a picture of here's, here's the Bible. Abraham, the father of our faith. David, the great king that we can't wait for his descendant to show up and bring peace and rule the earth. Our time in exile and now the Messiah. Here is the one that fulfills the promises to Abraham. Here's the one that fulfills the promises to David. Let me tell you about this child. So that's what he does in verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother, Mary, had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they were together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. So within the Jewish custom, uh, they would get, there would be an engagement, and in order to break off the engagement, you would actually have to leave the covenant, covenant and go through the process of a divorce. Joseph, you can kind of put yourself in him sho- his shoes. Maybe you've done this before. You go, you know, if I were engaged to somebody and we hadn't had any relations and then she was pregnant, sounds like she broke the terms of our covenant. Not sure I want to marry this person. That said, I don't want to disgrace her and so I'm going to divorce her secretly. And that's the decision that Joseph is ready to make. Verse 20, but after he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, there's that David thing again, don't be afraid to make Mary, take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So, It says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, as we saw earlier, Isaiah. See, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And so the angel shows up to David, and he gives him this information. Mary has not been unfaithful to you. She has not been unrighteous. She has kept herself clean. But the child that is within her, Luke says that the power of the Most High would overshadow her. And that word overshadow, it means for something mystical, something mysterious, something supernatural to take place inside of Mary. Conception in a way that had not existed in any other time or any other place. God overshadowing Mary and causing a child to be conceived within her body. mystical, supernatural, uh, not something that we can explain other than by God's means. And so Joseph, he says, well, okay, uh, if this is who this is, this son, he's going to be named Jesus, and that word Jesus, the name Jesus means to God is salvation, and God's going to save people from their sins. And and so this is who Jesus is. And, And then he quotes the, ver- the verses in Isaiah, that a virgin will become pregnant, give birth to a son, they will name him Emmanuel. He is going to be God with us. Now, this is crucial to Christianity. If Jesus is just another one of us, a human mother and a human father, that means he has no divinity. And if he has no divinity, he cannot pay for sin. He would be incapable of paying for sin. 
right? This is crucial to Christianity. If, if, if he is not divine, then he does not have the means or the power to pay for sin. Very important. So if you deny the virgin birth, you are denying salvation. If you say that, no, this was just another person that was born and he had some good teachings, uh, but he was just another human that died, uh, then he cannot save. You could believe that he died on the cross for our sins, but if he was not virgin born, his death was not capable of saving because he wasn't God. And so this is crucial to Christianity. You cannot leave this part out. The other thing that this would do to, to Jesus, if he is just another human being and you say he's a great teacher, look at all the wonderful things he taught us. Look at all the, all the guidance that he gave us. But he didn't die on the cross for our sins and he didn't raise from the dead to give us new life. Then what that means is Jesus is a teacher who left us with tremendous, tremendous moral obligation that we have to fill within our own strength in order to live a good life. He gave us more religion, more rules. Nice ones, but they depend upon your and I ability to do them. That also is not Christianity. Because what Christianity says is that when Jesus died on the cross as God and as man, he died there for our sins. His humanity is very important too because if he's not human, he can't be our representative. If he doesn't share our humanity, if he's not conceived inside of a woman, if he's not born through the birth canal, if he doesn't live as a human, he cannot act as our representative. He cannot replace the first Adam who failed, being the second Adam who succeeded. Everywhere that the first one failed, he succeeds. And so if he's not human, he can't act as our representative. If he's not divine, he can't pay the consequences for us. He wouldn't be capable. It's crucial that he's both. But the other thing is if he isn't divine and he isn't raised from the dead and he's just left us with a lot of rules, be they nice ones to follow, that means that the world being what it should be is dependent upon our effort rather than God's ability. And if this world is going to be right because of what we do, it is doomed. But if this world is going to be right because of God's forgiveness, because of God's healing, because of God's power, then we have hope. But if your hope is in what you can do and what government can do, if your hope is in uh, what a group of people coming together can do, you have very limited hope. Because what Jesus does, I want you to understand this, Jesus saves his people from their sins. You know that when he died on the cross, one time he paid for all of our sins and we are saved, redeemed, purchased, bought, and no longer have to bring up any debt that we owe God because Jesus paid it off. He paid that once and for all. He saved you. If you're a Christian, you know this. You have been saved from the consequences of your sin. You're also being saved. Because each and every morning, you and I as Christians wake up and we have this thing called the flesh and it has its desires and we could give in to them, but we are being saved from our flesh because the spirit of God indwells us and regenerates us and causes us to have power to live in a way that we could never live in our own abilities, like Jesus. He saved us past, he saves us present, and he will save us future. Our hope is not in this world being awesome because of what people can do. Our hope in this life and in eternity is based upon Jesus' return and his ability to judge, to cleanse, to forgive, to heal, to make new. We can't do those things. 
I cannot make this world what it should be. I cannot, I cannot save myself or anyone else. I cannot heal you or anyone else. I can't do any of those things. God might choose to do them through me, and I pray he does. But I can't do any of those things. I'm dependent upon him. He saved us, past tense, from our sins. He's saving us right now from the sin within our flesh and the sin that exists within this world. And he will save us future once and for all. That is the hope that we have laid up for us. Jesus saves his people from their sins. Are you one of his people? Have you been saved? Are you being saved? Is your hope in the salvation that he will bring? And it says that he did this in order to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah wrote, God with us. And so when we look at passages like these in Isaiah and Matthew, there there are two things, two plans going on. First is God's plan of the promised kingdom to David. That's one of the things that's going on within this plan. The Old Testament clearly taught that the Messiah from the line of David would bring in a glorious utopian reign on the earth in which the nation of Israel would have a prominent position. That's what we've been looking at in the book of Revelation. Jesus returns. He acts through the nation of Israel at at his second coming. It's through the nation of Israel and the prominent place that Jesus has within it as their king that the millennial reign exists, right? That was the promise of the Old Testament, the Messiah bringing a glorious utopian reign in which the nation of Israel has a prominent position. However, when Jesus showed up and offered that, he said, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. What did the Jewish nation do? They rejected him. They they sent him to the cross. Israel rejected the Messiah at his first coming. The king was spurned, so what happened to his kingdom? And that's one of the questions that Matthew would have to answer as a Jewish believer in Jesus Christ. What happened to the kingdom? And what we read in the New Testament is that the kingdom came in a way that we would not have anticipated. It came not as God with us on a throne in Jerusalem with an awesome temple and a big army and everybody bowing down. That's that's what they were looking for. It came on a different throne and that would be the throne of my heart. The kingdom of God is present within us. He is transforming us from the inside out as we adore him, as we honor him, as we praise him, as we say, lead me. I trust you and I want you to lead me. And then the kingdom of God is present within us. And so Matthew answers these questions. Like I said, he looks at the Old Testament. He shows the Jewish people over and over again how, yes, the kingdom of God came and it was rejected, but it shows up in a new and different way during this church age. It includes Gentiles. It doesn't have anything to do with the Mosaic law because Jesus fulfilled the Mosaic law and we're freed from the law, but we're also freed from our flesh and we now live in freedom to follow Jesus, right? The kingdom of God is within my heart. And yet, it is to come in the physical sense when Christ returns. The second thing that we see in a passage like this is God's plan of salvation, And so you ask, how will Emmanuel, how will God with us save their people from from our sins? How's he going to do it? You know, how how can people be right with God again? 
how will God be with us once again? How is he gonna do this? And again, it goes back to Jesus being our representative, dying on our behalf as a human, but being divine and having all the means to pay for our sin. An illustration that might help. If you came over to my house right now, we have two dogs, uh, Hoover and Eden, and then there's six little puppies, little golden doodles, and it's a lot of fun. Um, And uh, if you walked in to where the puppies are, Eden might not like you being there, right? She might get a little protective. And maybe uh, you don't understand this about dogs. You kneel down, you try and grab one of those puppies, and Eden says, I don't think so, and gets a hold of your face. And you're like, wow, I am bleeding and I am torn up. I'm gonna have to go to the hospital. I'm gonna need stitches. And then like, you know, I probably don't wanna have a scar on my face. This is, this is a long road ahead of me. I, I've been hurt here. I've been injured. I've been wounded. And it's, there's gonna cost associated with this. You're not gonna look at Eden and say, get out the checkbook, little girl. You're gonna look at me. You say, your dog bit me. I gotta go to the hospital. I'm gonna have all these bills. You're, I, you're gonna have to pay for this. There's a, there's a balance that's due here. I don't expect the dog to pay it, but I do expect you to pay it. And that's exactly what goes on within the divine tragedy that is our sin. We are incapable of paying it. And so instead of looking to ourselves to pay it, would be as silly as looking for a dog to pay your medical bills, we look to Jesus to pay it. And he did. He paid it. He gave his life as a ransom for ours. And so maybe you know the answers to those questions. What's God's plan of salvation? How will Emmanuel save their people from their sins? How can we be right with him? How will he be with us again? Maybe you know the answers to those questions. They're in your head. How do, how do they show up in your week? Do those, do those answers change your heart? You know, authentic Christianity, it lays itself bare before God and it says, God, I want my words to be your words. I want my actions to be your actions. I want to be empowered by your spirit and I want to do it all for your glory. And, and any other form of Christianity is, is not really Christianity. Anything that says it's my effort, it's my words, it's what I can do, that's not really Christianity. That's not really Jesus. Because Jesus wants to give and bless and envelop us, indwell us, and move through us. And when he's doing that, when I am in his arms and he is in my heart and the throne of my heart is is seated with Christ, I'm going to live different. I'm going to speak different. I'm going to act different. And so they can't be just answers in our head. And they have to be a pattern of life. And maybe I ask those questions and you don't know the answers. You never heard that before, or you had, but you still thought it was somewhat dependent upon you. Do you know that you need to be forgiven? We we need to be forgiven. We have done wrong against our Maker. We have done wrong against the creator of the universe and we need to be forgiven. There's a debt that's supposed to be paid there and and like I said earlier, you could count on yourself, not wise, or you could trust that Jesus has done it for you. 
And you can say, well, I don't really need to be forgiven. I've actually seen some people come out of the church, people that were in the church leave and say, I, I don't, there's nothing I need to be forgiven of. You've never done wrong to someone else? Like, just slow down, and even the last month, think of the wrong that you've done to someone else, intentionally or otherwise. Think of the hurt that you caused. And then the thing that we may or may not understand is we've done the same thing to God. We've acted against him and hurt his heart and need to be forgiven. Do you know your need to be healed? See, because there's the wrong that we've done to others, but then there's also the wrong that others have done to us. And we wear those scars. And we have those hurts and those memories and those broken places. And we need to be healed. Do you know that Jesus is here for that too? He wants to take the brokenness. He wants to take the hurt. He wants to take what others have done to harm you and actually heal that and then use you to heal that same thing in others. He'll actually take the things that have put scars on you, heal them, and then allow you to be a part of him healing that in someone else. You become a vessel of blessing and life rather than hurt and resentment. He wants to heal you. Do you know that you need to have your pride washed away? You might think, I don't have pride. We live in America. Give me a break. Think of how egotism and self-centered living keeps you out of harmony with others. Do you find yourself lacking harmony with the very people that you should be able to embrace? Think how much better off you'd be if you had a perfect example to follow. And the power of the Almighty indwelling you to live that example. See, this is what Christianity is. That's who Jesus is. He has forgiven. He heals. And he gives life. And so I wonder if you know Jesus. I wonder if you'd like to know Jesus. He's with us right now. He's in our midst. He's living, saving, forgiving, healing, blessing, transforming, comforting, correcting, and so much more right now. And so I wonder if you know this Jesus, Emmanuel, who saves their people from their sin. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, it is amazing that I can say that I know you. Uh, not everything. That, uh, I, I, I don't think I'll ever get to do that, but I'll continue to get to know you more and more. And can, as I get to know you more, I'll continue to be transformed by you. Jesus, you have loved us and you are with us. You came and lived a life among us. You gave your life on our behalf, our representative as a human and fully divine and capable of paying the cost. You've done that for us. You rose from the dead to give us new life. So we celebrate your advent, the virgin conception, the plan of salvation things that we humans couldn't come up with on our own and certainly couldn't execute on our own. 
we are in need of you. And so as we sing hallelujah, God, I pray that uh, you would forgive us, you would cleanse us, and you would give us life. Thank you for saving us in the, from our past sins. Thank you for saving us day by day from the sin that would entangle us. And thank you for the salvation that awaits us in eternity to come. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.